I just have a few um, just a few remarks I want to make before we get started. Um, first of all, uh, we prayed for uh, Jared Blue during opening worship. He's a, a real dear brother and part of uh, not just our Tuesday night, also our weekend congregation, he and his wife, Christina. Um, he's 31. They've been married for a year and a half. And he has a very, very, very aggressive form of lymphoma. I've visited in, him in the hospital every day since he's for the last few days. Um, they said that they can feel the prayers of our church. And we don't normally stream our 1045 service, but we're streaming it this morning just for them. Um, so I'm wondering, as hopefully they are watching us right now, um, that they're participating with us in spirit, if we could just offer him a supportive like, round of applause to let him know that our hearts are with him as he sits in the hospital. Jared, Christina, if you're watching, <clears throat> we love you, and we stand with you in the midst of this trial. The scriptures say to bear one another's burdens, and we're going to help you bear this one. Um, we're going to help them in part by holding a prayer vigil tonight right here from 5 to 6. I'll be here, and Pastor Justin will be here leading us in songs. And so if you're interested in just coming and praying and interceding, um, on Jared's behalf, then we just invite anybody that feels led to come and just and gather with us here at five o'clock. Amen. Um, those things being said, I just want to ask if you would extend me a little bit of grace this morning. Pastors sometimes need grace too. Um, last night they said, "Mike, you went too fast." This morning they said, "Mike, you went too long." So I'm in a quandary. <laughs> a guy just can't win. Uh, so if I go a little bit long this morning, I just ask for your grace. I really believe, I, I hope everybody feels like you do, Lisa. <laughs> um, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best to get through this as quickly, as expeditiously as possible. But I do feel like um, what I have to communicate uh, to you, share with you this morning is very, very important. Um, and so let's get going. At, at the outset here, I just want to pay all of you a compliment. You look very beautiful this morning. You do. I'm not just buttering you up. That's the truth. You look very beautiful. Uh, and I got to say that I think that from my vantage point up here, I see a kind of post-Easter glow radiating from you. Um, I'd also like to note that everyone seems a little bit more trim. <laughs> Perhaps, shall we say, a little bit more light of foot. Uh, I think that's to be expected after 21 days of eating carrots and celery. And frankly, I think that it's a miracle we're all still alive. Um, I have a question. As we approach the end of the fast, did anybody have any specific like food cravings? Maybe you were craving your favorite dish from your favorite restaurant. Maybe you were craving a particular dessert. Men, maybe you were just craving some meat. Cheeseburger. Oh, man. Amen. Um, I, I have to confess, Mario, that, you know, as, as we approach the end of the fast, I was just longing for a great 
big, juicy burger with cheese and bacon, lots of bacon. Forget the burger, I just wanted a big plate of bacon. Yeah. Um, man food, right? Uh, seriously though, I really was craving a burger and people, we live in Southern California. When we want a burger, where do we go? In and out. And all God's people said, and all God's people said, in and out. I love it. Or five guys. Or five guys. Got in and out, we got five guys. So, you're a captive audience. Let's take a poll. Let's vote. We voted at all three services. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what the final tally is. Who prefers in and out? Ooh, strong showing. Who prefers five guys? Oh, wow. Pitiful. Pitiful representation for five guys. All right, so in and out, the decisive victor at all four services. Okay. <laughs> um, when you fast for 21 days and you want a burger, you want the best burger that you can find, right? Where are you going with this, Mike? Here's my point. <clears throat> I think that it's safe to say um, that it's in our human nature, it's in our wiring, uh, it's in our DNA um, to pick the best of anything whenever that's possible. Does that make sense? I want to give you um, a different example just to kind of reinforce this point. Um, when I reminisce about the glorious days of my youth back in the day when, when my modest frame was capable of fantastic athletic feats, uh, back when I played a lot of pickup basketball, could dunk a basketball, um, at the park or at the gym, I, uh, I recall one very crucial element of strategy. <clears throat> and that crucial element of strategy was picking your teammates. Who's played pickup ball at all? Okay, a few of you. You only stay on the court if what? If you win, right? You only stay on the court if you win. So if you go to the park or you go to the gym and you want to play ball, you want to stay on the court, you better pick good teammates, right? Um, do you want to pick just any old Joe to be on your team? No disrespect if your name is Joe <laughs> or if you're old. Um, no, you don't. You don't want to pick just any old Joe. Uh, you want to pick the best players you can. You want Kobe on your team. If you get that guy, you're staying on the court. <clears throat> now, even though I live in L.A., born and raised, I, uh, I got to say that I really don't want Kobe on my team. I want this guy on my team. Yeah, all right? <clears throat> yeah. If I got that guy on my team, I'm going to win. So who do you want for your basketball team? Uh, who do you pick for your fantasy football team? If you have your own business, uh, whom do you hire to be your employees? When we pick, we naturally pick those individuals with the very best qualifications. We naturally pick the best candidates. Yet today, we're going to see that God has very graciously, mercifully, sovereignly chosen to act in history vastly differently than we tend to. And so this morning as we dive back into Matthew's gospel, we're going to see a certain principle at work that the Apostle Paul communicates so beautifully in, the, in his first letter to the Corinthians. And so we're going to use his statements as a jumping off point into Matthew. So if I can direct your attention to the screens, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but God chose what is 
foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This leads us to the first principle that I would like to communicate and affirm this morning, and that is very simply that God has chosen the foolish and the weak and the low and the despised to confound the wise and to display His glory. Now, before we dig into our passage, I want to invest just a few moments and kind of zoom out and do a brief flyover of the Gospel of Matthew as we've experienced so far. Um, We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for some time now. Specifically, we've been camping out in chapters 8 through 9. And sometimes I think that it's helpful for for us to just kind of like pause for the cause and, and ask ourselves, like, how did we get here? How did we get from point A to point B? What's going on, you know, in the book, in the broader narrative, and how does our passage fit? Because as we learn to be skilled um, readers of God's Word, we, we also need to learn to appreciate the context. God didn't just ex- inspire the passage that we're going to study this morning. He also inspired that it be situated, placed where it is in the context. Does that make sense? So, uh, Matthew's Gospel starts out with a genealogy, which to a, 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 an early Jewish reader would just scream king, scream messiah. So, we have a genealogy, we have a birth narrative, and we know that in that birth narrative, there's a flight to Egypt, an eventual return to Nazareth. After that birth narrative, John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus. Um, Jesus is then baptized by John the Baptist to fulfill, to fulfill all righteousness, as Jesus himself says. Then the Spirit compels, drives Jesus out in the wilderness to be tempted. We have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, right? He's been tempted though he's without sin. Um, And then after his temptation, Jesus kind of launches his ministry. He launches his public ministry in Galilee. He calls the first disciples, Simon, Peter, and Andrew. He calls James and John. Great crowds start to gather around him. He begins to minister to them. And then in chapters 5 through 7, which immediately precede the chapters we're in, so we're in 8 through 9, right? 5 through 7 record Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest collection, you know, of his teachings that we have. And so, in chapters 5 through 7, we see Jesus laying down a new Torah for a new covenant. And then after that, um, our narrative picks up right where we are in chapters 8 through 9. I think that chapters 8 through 9 are very, very powerful. They're particularly powerful. And and Matthew has organized chapters 8 through 9 in a very intentional way, all right? And we can help understand what we've been studying, what we will study today, and what we're going to study in the following weeks by appreciating the structure. And so I've just supplied that for you in your notes for your own reference. But basically, chapters 8 through 9 break down like this. Um, Chapters 8 through 9 consist of three sections, all right? So three. You with me so far? Three sections. And each one of those sections has three miracle accounts punctuated by a discipleship account. So you have three miracle accounts, discipleship account. Three more miracle accounts, discipleship account. Three more miracle accounts, discipleship account. And that's Matthew 8 through 9. 
Okay, so this morning, we're going to be diving into that second discipleship account. Why would Matthew organize these chapters into miracles, then discipleship? Miracles, then discipleship. Well, he's writing to primarily um, a Jewish audience of young believers, and the miracles demonstrate Jesus' authority, okay? Would you follow just any old Joe? No. But would you follow a guy maybe if he was raising people from the dead? Would you follow somebody that demonstrated the authority to forgive sin? Um, would, you would you follow somebody that demonstrated the power to heal a quadriplegic, a paralytic? Maybe. So miracles demonstrate Jesus' authority. Somebody that can like, say, you know, calm the sea, has authority over nature, has authority over demons, has authority over sickness, all these things. Maybe you'd follow a guy like that. So miracles display Jesus' authority. But then these discipleship passages teach us what it means to follow him. Okay? Teach us about the nature of his call to follow. For example, a few weeks ago, we camped out in the first discipleship section, in chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. And in that section, we see Jesus interact with two different figures. We see him interact with an eager scribe and a reluctant disciple. So this scribe was a guy that was studying Torah. He probably camped out in his local synagogue, spent a lot of time with Pharisees, studied the word. He was a budding young theologian. And it was customary for young theologians to approach the, the rabbis and be like, yo, I want to follow you. And then, you know, the rabbi would teach them and raise them up and turn them into a rabbi. But as that happened, they would gain status in the culture, right? And as they gained status, they would gain material security. And so this eager scribe comes to Jesus, right? And, and what does Jesus say to him when he says, teacher, I'll follow you? Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Don't think you're going to get what you expect you're going to get if you come follow me. And then, right on the heels of that, we see Jesus call a reluctant disciple, follow me. Whoa, hold up. I got to go bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. Whoa, that seems insensitive. But Jesus communicating the, the immediate priority of discipleship to him. And so, in the first discipleship section, we saw these, these guys. Today, in this discipleship section, the second one of chapters 8 through 9, uh, we're going to see that Jesus has not come for the elite. He has not come for the particularly religious. He's not come for those who are really pious. But Jesus has come for true sinners. Jesus has come for derelicts, for, for the downtrodden, and for the despised. So, in the passage that we were in, in the very beginning of chapter 9, just before Easter, um, we observe Jesus forgiving sin, right? And he demonstrates his ability, his authority to forgive sin by healing this, this, this paralytic. And so you see Jesus demonstrating a great deal of compassion, caring first for the man's soul, secondly for his bodily state, and then Jesus continues his ministry. He moves on. But in this passage this morning, we're going to see something amazing about Jesus. Jesus doesn't approach a sinner, heal them, and just move on and let them be. This morning, we're going to see that Jesus receives, comes towards sinners, and takes them with him. If you've been in any kind of, served in any kind of ministry capacity at all um, in, in the church, whether here at Hope Chapel or somewhere else, um, you probably have learned in some sense that sometimes ministering to very, very broken people requires a lot of investment of life, right? And it's one thing to kind of pray for somebody in need 
and then, and then let them move on and go separate way. And that's good. We should pray for each other. But it's a whole other thing to pray for that person and then to take them into your life, to discipleship, to disciple them, to care for them, and to walk with them, right? And so we're going to see Jesus doing that this morning. Um, we're going to see Jesus calling sinners the most unlikely candidates. Jesus doesn't just heal sinners and then move on. He, he invites sinners to play on his team. Um, he doesn't just draft them to put them on the bench. Jesus drafts them to put, him, put them in his starting lineup. And so just those uh, introductory remarks, I want to invite you uh, to turn your attention, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, and we're just going to read through um, our five verses for this morning. Matthew tells us, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You'll notice on your notes that the title of my sermon this morning is Derelicts to Disciples. So you might be wondering, Mike, what is a derelict? And to accommodate your curiosity, I've supplied a definition. A derelict is a person who is shamefully negligent in not having done what they should have done. It's another way of saying a sinner. He was derelict in his duty to his country. He was derelict in his duty to his family. He was derelict in his duty to his God. And today we're going to see that Jesus is truly the doctor of derelicts, that he seeks and calls the defective, the downtrodden, the despised, and the derelicts so that he can deliver them from the power and penalty of sin and make them call him to be his own disciples. So let's turn our attention back to our passage. Verse 9 as Jesus passed on from there, all right, we are one, two, three, four, six words deep into our passage. What question do you already have in your mind? From where? Where is there, right? Um, if we go back to chapter 4, verse 12, Matthew tells us something interesting. Chapter 4, verse 12, it'll eventually pop up. Uh, Matthew tells us that now when, when he heard that John had been arrested, there it is, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So John gets arrested, John the Baptist, then Jesus begins his public ministry. And leaving Nazareth, which was his childhood home, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. So Matthew tells us earlier in the gospel that Jesus relocates home base. I'm going to start my ministry, and if I'm going to start my ministry three hard years of slogging it out, at least I'm going to live on the beach, okay? <laughs> Capernaum by the sea. So we fast forward from 4.12 uh, to the previous passage a couple weeks ago in chapter 9, we see, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. What, where's his own city? We just learned that. Capernaum, right? So, so now Jesus, at the beginning of our passage, is set in Capernaum, all right? And you can see on this map here, um, Jerusalem's at the bottom. That was the, the epicenter of Judaism, right? And then Nazareth, second from the top, where Jesus grew up. And then Capernaum, beachfront property, Manhattan Beach right there. Hermosa Beach, South Redondo, Palos Verdes, okay? So Jesus is there when he begins his ministry. Um, 
as Jesus passed on from there. So we know that Jesus passes on uh, from his home base of Capernaum in Galilee, and apparently he's walking outside, just outside of the city, when bam, who does he run into? Matthew, the tax collector, sitting at his tax toll booth. Now, as we approach this passage this morning, I think that we really have to keep in mind that most people in the ancient world, most people in Jesus' day were extraordinarily poor. Um, Think worse than paycheck to paycheck. Um, Think subsistence farming, like working the ground so that your family, your children, and hopefully also you had food to eat that night so you, you you weren't like suffering from malnutrition the next day. Um, they didn't have much. Dad probably wasn't bringing home much bacon. Uh, Galilee was not exactly a lucrative landscape of opportunity. You were lucky if your dad had a local fishing business to pass down to you, you know, or a trade of some kind to train you in. Um, And I think we'd all understand that, like, when you don't have much coming in to survive on, you don't want the local tax man coming your way, right? Um... So we might ask, why were tax collectors so despised in the ancient world? Over and above the fact that we just don't really like, you know, somebody taking the money that we earned. Um, I think it boils down to this. What made tax collectors so detestable was the fact that they abused their Roman-backed authority and position to extort people. Um, To skim off the top, and generally speaking, Uh, to rip people off who barely had anything to begin with. Uh, These guys were like the opposite of Robin Hood. Instead of robbing the rich to give to the poor, they were notorious for robbing the poor to give to themselves. Needless to say, when you literally toil and work the ground to earn your living, you don't like the guy who walks up to you and demands a cut, Um, especially when he's unscrupulous, especially when he's crooked, especially when he's one of your own Jewish people who has in effect, defected and sworn allegiance in some sense to Rome and now acts with the full weight, the full authority um, of both the Roman Empire and the local government behind him. You see, when somebody has the power of Rome and the local governor behind him, you can't mess with that guy, right? If he wants to take a cut and cheat you, he can do it and there's not much you can do about it. Here's a contemporary example. Um, nobody wants to see an IRS agent show up at their doorstep, right? Especially not an IRS agent that's crooked, dishonest, and intending to extort you. Nobody likes that guy. Furthermore, nobody can do much about that guy. What are you going to do? Sue the IRS? Good luck. So, so tax collectors in general, in that time, were oppressors of the people, cheaters of the people. And they had a reputation for being ethically derelict. Matthew was probably that guy. Matthew was probably that guy. um, An ethical derelict of the first degree. And yet, what do we see in this passage? Jesus calls who to play on his team? Jesus calls that guy. Jesus redeems that guy. Jesus seeks Matthew out. Jesus calls Matthew to be his disciple, to play on his team. So we've been talking a lot about Matthew, but look at what Jesus can do for a sinner like Matthew, and by extension, sinners like you and I. Um, As much as we've been focusing on Matthew, 
it's really not about Matthew at all. It's all about Jesus, right? Jesus is at the center of it all. Jesus is our only hope for redemption and reform. He's our only hope to be transformed from derelicts to disciples. Put yourself in the place, the mindset um, of an early Jewish Christian, right? Um, So you're an early Jewish Christian. Jesus has died and buried, risen. Um, It's, you know, the eyewitnesses are still alive, but the first copies of the Gospels are just beginning to circulate, right, to encourage the new Christians. And you're a young Jewish Christian, and you get a copy of Matthew's Gospel, or you hear it read, you know, in in a, a local house church, or maybe a synagogue for the first time, and you're thinking, oh, dang, he teaches with authority, not like that chump scribe down the street in my synagogue. Oh, dang, he just healed that paralytic. Oh, he just calmed the sea. He just forgave that guy's sin. That's heavy. Hold up. Hold up. No, he didn't. He didn't just call that tax collector. I know he didn't just do that. Remember the fantasy football analogy. Who are you going to draft? Not the tax collector. But this leads to another principle that I want to offer to you this morning, and that is God does not call the qualified God sovereignly and graciously and mercifully qualifies those whom he calls. Back to verse 9. Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Something has to be said at this point about the nature of Jesus' call to, to discipleship and the implications of his call. So first I want to spend just a couple moments reflecting on that call. So in our English Bibles, we get these two words, follow me. It seems like a very straightforward statement. But if we look at it in the original language, um, in the Greek, it, it reads in a little bit higher definition. The meaning doesn't change, but it's like the difference between watching standard definition fuzzy television and high definition, or maybe ultra high definition now, television. Um, so in the Greek, it reads akalutheimoi, two words, just like in the English, but that construction is in the present tense, and it's in the imperative mood, all right? And this is very significant for two reasons. First of all, let's consider the tense. It's in the present tense, and in Greek, unlike English, our language doesn't communicate this nuance like the Greek did, but the present tense in Greek has this thing called an aspect, right? And the aspect in this instance is continuous, So it's telling us something about the nature of the command, the nature of the action, that this action of following is supposed to continue indefinitely. It's a continuous action. Does that make sense? All right? So the following is to begin and not to end. Secondly, um, this is in the imperative mood. All right? So this is a command. Jesus is commanding Matthew to follow him. And the, the imperative mood emphasizes the immediate response that Jesus requires of those who he calls. So as we consider consider the nature of this call, I want to point out that Jesus is not asking politely. Um, Jesus is not seeking a temporary arrangement with Matthew. Jesus is calling Matthew with absolute authority from God and as God. And his call demands an immediate response. Recall what I said just a few moments ago about the discipleship section in chapter 8. When that 
you know, Jesus calls that reluctant disciple. And he's like, oh, let me first go bury my father. Jesus is like, let the dead bury their dead. He expects you to come now when he calls. And he expects you not just to come now, but to keep coming until he comes. Does that make sense? So, the call. What about the response? What do we see here in Matthew? Matthew recognizes the absolute authority of Jesus' call. He doesn't hesitate. He's in his tax booth. Then he's not in his tax booth, right? Like he's in his tax booth, and then all of a sudden it's behind him. He recognizes the immediacy of the response that's required of him. And so we see that Jesus takes the initiative, seeks out and redeems, calls a most detestable derelict. And this leads us to the first of our four main points this morning, and that is very simply that Jesus calls the noticeably unworthy in order to demonstrate God's grace and loving kindness. Has anybody ever had anything positively life-changing happen to you? How many of us have met Jesus? That, I think that's positively life-changing. Um, what do you do when something positively life-changing happens to you? I mean, yeah, you tell everybody, right, Andy? Like, you throw a big party and invite all of your friends over to share the good news with. Let's check out verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So what does Matthew do? Matthew throws a party and invites his friends. Something needs to be said about this party. Um, one commentator observes, and this is a consistent observation among scholars, that this was, this was a celebratory meal. Okay? And there was an intention behind this celebratory meal. This celebratory meal, this banquet, was intended, meant to introduce Jesus to Matthew's friends and to explain to them Matthew's change of allegiance and his change of occupation. Now, who likes juicy details? You, I, I like juicy details. I know you like juicy details. Um, I think that's really helpful in this instance to reference the parallel account that Luke offers us in his gospel. Because Luke's, Luke's account um, offers, provides some great big juicy details that I think um, help us see this in, in higher definition. So if we can see Luke 5.29 on the screen, Luke tells us, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. Now, just to clear up some potential confusion, it was very common in that day for somebody to have two or maybe even three names. It was very common for people to speak two or three languages, Aramaic, maybe Hebrew if you were more educated, um, Greek, Latin maybe. And so it was very common for people to have also multiple names. And if we read the Gospels and we read Acts, it becomes very clear that Matthew and Levi are the same guy. Does that make sense? But um, Matthew's writing to a predominantly Jewish audience and Luke is writing his gospel to a predominantly Gentile, different audience, right? And so they use different names, but it's the same guy. Um, and so what do we see in Luke? Um, we see that Matthew hosts what kind of banquet? A great banquet, right? Um, we see that he hosts it where? At his house. And who's assembled there? Not just a crowd, but a what? A large crowd. So presumably, like, we're in Capernaum, you know, it's like Manhattan Beach, we're on the Strand, um, it's probably a double lot, okay, because it's large enough to accommodate a large crowd. We know that this is Matthew's house, and that it's a great banquet. 
So Matthew was a man of means. Um, Matthew was what those of you who are also 80s kids like me would call a baller, right? Matthew was a baller. He was wealthy. And for those of you who are 80s kids, again, I got to say that if they had cable back in the first century, his house would certainly have been featured on MTV Cribs. (laughs) But what I want to point out, what I want to point out is this. Uh, Matthew could afford to put on a great banquet for a large crowd at his house. And what do we see in all three gospel accounts? We see that even though he's set, set up, he's rich, he's secure, even though people may not like him because he's a tax collector, in a time when it was hard to make it, he made it, and he made it big, right? And what does he do when Jesus calls? He leaves it all behind. He leaves it all behind without hesitation. Verse 10, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Everybody likes a good scandal, admit it. If you turn on the news and you see scandal scrolling across the marquee, you're like, what's going on? So we don't really realize it as immediately because there's 2,000 years separating the authorship of this gospel from us, but for the first century reader, this scene is entirely scandalous. It's scandalous, Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, seeing them throw a banquet. And if you look at the English language in the ESV, it it actually renders the original language um, very appropriately. It says, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house. That seems kind of awkward, right? Like, why didn't they just put the in there? And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house. I don't get it. Maybe the translators missed something. Like, was he taking a sip of coffee and just forgot the the? Um, but the reason is, is, is because the verb being translated there to recline at table is, is, a, is a kind of a technical term. It's, and that time, that culture was very different from ours. Um, they, they were very concerned with honor and shame. So we really like education in our culture, right? So like the more educated you are, that's kind of like considered to be an elevation of status. Like if you have doctor in front of your name, that's like, that gives you elevated status, right? So in that time, people liked honor, and they didn't like shame. And to recline at table was to say something. It was to make a statement. It was to be associated with honor or with shame. S. Scott Barchi, who is a brilliant uh, historian of the world of the New Testament, regrettably from UCLA. I can't believe I'm going to cite him. I've got Trojan blood. Um, He says this, okay, about to recline at table. Um, To recline at table, to share a meal in this particular way was to share a life. Um, It was to establish a kind of alliance in that culture. Um, It was to make a kind of declaration that a person was being accepted, absorbed into, identifying with a particular group. And so what's so scandalous about this to the early Christians and, and to the non-Christians and, and the people who are in that scene as in the actual narrative as, as it's unfolding um, is like Jesus is here being accepted into a group of sinners, right? Now, we've talked a lot about tax collectors. What is a tax collector? Why don't we like them? Why didn't they like them? What about sinners? 
in the Gospels and in Acts, the term sinner can have two different meanings, right? So bear with me for just a second. The first potential meaning is the Am Haaretz, which is just Hebrew for the people of the land, just the general people. They may not go to synagogue every, you know, or, or you know, synagogue every weekend. They probably don't read their Torah all the time. Probably a lot of them are uneducated and illiterate, but they're just the general people of the land, and kind of the religious elite look down on them because they were less sophisticated, so they might call them sinners. But that's not how the term is being used in our passage this morning. Um, in our passage this morning, the term sinner carries a different meaning. Okay, and sinner here refers to particularly grievous sinners, to the most criminal and disreputable types of people in Jewish society. Think pimps and prostitutes, thieves, gamblers, and the most unclean kind of Gentiles. So in our passage this morning, sinners has that meaning. And so what do we see? We see that Jesus is clearly hanging out with a bunch of dirty, rotten scoundrels. He's hanging out with the worst kinds of sinners in the culture at that time. So as we, as we kind of picture the scene, I would like to ask you to consider the imagery. As we consider the imagery, I want to ask you this question. Who is dirty to you? Who is dirty to you? What would you think if you saw one of your pastors hanging out with a group of prostitutes in the red light district? What would you think if you turned on TV or saw TMZ and one of your pastors was rubbing shoulders with Hollywood elites on the west side? How would you feel, what would you think if you saw one of your pastors hanging out, maybe even having a beer with some hardened criminal gangsters in South Central? Or how about in a gay bar? How would you feel if you saw one of your pastors walking out with a group of gay men from a gay bar? I hope that hard questions like that will lead us to consider and to arrive at our second point that I believe this passage is communicating in vivid, ultra-high definition. And that is that Jesus comes to dwell in uncomfortable contexts. And as we consider how Jesus did dwell in uncomfortable contexts, I would like to ask this question. How did Jesus interface, interact with sinners? I wonder what it was like at that banquet. I wonder if people, the sinners, the tax collectors, the pimps, the prostitutes at that banquet were like, looking at each other, dude, this guy's an epic buzzkill. Like, he's a real, he's a real jerk. No, I don't think that's how it went down at all. I think that the text communicates that Jesus was the party, that it all centered around him. Miraculously, in a gathering of sinners, at a great banquet of sinners, redemption, deliverance, and hope were at the center of that party. We might say that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life of that party. He was there. He was on mission, calling sinners to repentance. Did every one of those tax collectors and sinners repent? Did every one of them repent? We don't know. We don't know. That wasn't necessarily the point of the passage. 
The point of the passage wasn't what did they all do. The point of the passage was what did Jesus do. So what we do know is that Jesus was there doing work. He was putting in work. He was getting things done. He was meeting sinners where they were at, loving them, building relationship with them, building bridges to call sinners into the kingdom, to call sinners to lives of following him, to call sinners to lives of repentance and faith. I believe that it's very, 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 very important to read the Bible. Not just so that we can check off some religious box in our list of spiritual to-dos, but because it's God's very word. It's his self-disclosure to us, and it shapes us. It shapes us. It ministers to us. And we learn who he is. We perceive God's very character as we absorb, as we feast on his scriptures. And as you survey the Gospels as you read them over and over and over again, certain themes begin to percolate, emerge, so that they're perceptible to us. And I believe that one of those is very clearly that Jesus was the master of flexing two muscles simultaneously. First, Jesus was the master of flexing the muscle of compassion and mercy and love. But Jesus was also the master of simultaneously flexing the muscle of spiritual, ethical, and moral conviction. It's interesting today, in the religious climate that we live in, many people either flex one muscle or the other. I interact with many people who want to flex the muscle of, of mercy and love and compassion And they want to dine with sinners and either sin with them or not call their sin a sin, right? They're afraid to call a spade a spade. On the other hand, I talk to just as many, if not more, Christians who want to flex the mercy or flex the muscle of moral and ethical and spiritual conviction. And as a consequence, they want to have nothing to do with sinners. They just want to come to church on the weekend We feel nice and safe inside of our four walls and under our roof. We want to sing our songs, put our offering in the plate, and then go on our way. But I think what we see in Jesus, in God, in the flesh, is that those two things are not mutually exclusive. You see, Jesus simultaneously flexes the muscle of moral, ethical, and spiritual conviction with the muscle of grace and mercy and love. Does that make sense? Jesus, in this passage and everywhere, always takes the initiative. Jesus was not afraid to party with sinners. They did not influence him. He influenced them. He did not do it to win their approval. He did it to win their souls. You see, Jesus was a wise evangelist. He never compromised the truth, but he communicated the truth in love. He moved towards the lost. He moved moved towards the broken. He moved towards the sinner. He built a foundation of love and grace as a vehicle for communication of the truth. I think that we could really learn something from Jesus here. How should we interface with sinners? What happens... When the CEO of Starbucks comes out and criticizes the evangelical church or endorses gay marriage, 
what do we do? We make noise. Boycott Starbucks. We're all going to Coffee Bean now. And it makes headlines reinforcing the tragic misperception that Jesus' people, and maybe by extension Jesus himself, are a bunch of grumpy, reactionary, isolationist troglodytes. Jesus' ministry was underwritten by love. His ministry was underwritten by love, and that love was communicated or worked out through sacrifice. Jesus is our exemplar par excellence of living a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life. And at its essence, a cruciform life is a life lived such as this. I die so that others might rise. I give my life away so that others might find it. I will never forget my first year of seminary. I don't even remember what class it was. I remember the professor. And I'll never forget this moment of lecture. The professor was talking about evangelism in the early church. And this just came to me in this moment. Otherwise, I would have looked up the specific details for you. But um, I will never forget that he said that in the first 500 years, somewhere in the first 500 years um, of the early church, there was a period when, when plague broke out, broke out and people were dying like crazy. And the Christians, understanding Jesus' love for the lost and their great commission to go and make disciples, um, having a great burden for the broken, the lost, and the sinful, um, they would take it upon themselves to identify someone with plague, take them into their home, probably get plague themselves, but care for that person until they both died. And invariably, the person who was taken in would say, why are you doing this? Why are you putting yourself in harm's way for me? It's funny you should ask. A man once put himself in harm's way for me. Yeah, wow. When I, when I heard that, that hit me like a ton of bricks. That really shaped my perspective on how Jesus reaches us and how we ought to learn from him and reach other sinners. I wonder, I wonder, you know, like to the 80s, 90s, when the AIDS epidemic was getting tons of news and there wasn't many viable, you know, alternatives of treatment and people were dying, especially in the homosexual community. I wonder where we'd be today in relation to the outside world um, certainly there'd probably still be some hostility and angst, but I wonder where we'd be if for the last 30 years, Christians had taken that approach. Christians had identified homosexual men and women dying of AIDS, taken them into their homes, and loved and cared for them as unto Jesus. wonder where we'd be. I could tell you what Jesus says, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I suggest, brothers and sisters, that we must live above reproach and demonstrate grace and compassion through lives of initiative 
and kindness so that when the moment comes to invite the broken sinner to find Jesus through the narrow gate of faith and repentance, we can say to him or to her, sometimes the loving father says, no, that is not the way, but this is the way. Let me introduce you to Jesus who will forgive your sins and heal your soul. As I prepared for this message and studied the passage, I stumbled across a very penetrating quote by one commentator, uh, an incredible scholar of the New Testament, Craig Blomberg. And I just want to read it to you. So I'm going to ask for just a minute of radical focus. He says this, Jesus' fraternizing with the disreputable people remains a scandal in the predominantly middle-class suburban Western church. Many of us, like the Pharisees, at best ignore the outcasts of our society and at worst continue to discriminate against them. We would do well to consider substantially increasing our spiritual, evangelistic, and social outreach to minorities, the homeless, prostitutes, addicts and pushers, gays and lesbians, AIDS victims, and the like, as well as to the more hidden outcasts, such as divorcees, single parents, the elderly, white-collar alcoholics, and so on and so forth. We must get to know them as intimately as Jesus did. Only close and trusted friends shared table fellowship over meals, reclined at table. We dare not join with sinners in their sinning, but we may well have to go to places with them and encounter the world's wickedness in ways that the contemporary Pharisees in our churches will decry. Verse 11, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I believe, again, for my brothers and sisters that are of the 80s generation, that this sentiment can be expressed in one word. The Pharisees are effectively saying to the disciples, Dude, dude, what is your teacher doing? What's up with that? He's dining with who? With sinners and tax collectors? Dude. And so that leads us to the third point this morning. Dude. Jesus condemns the self-righteousness of the religious elite. We're going to talk about the Pharisees for just a moment, but we need to be careful about looking down on these guys because all of us have blind spots. Again, I want to invite you to kind of put one foot in the world in the New Testament and keep one foot in our modern day and put yourself in the mindset of an average first century Jewish person. Just one of the ordinary people of the land, if you will. Um, for those people, the Pharisees really re represented the middle class, okay? Um, you wanted to get to the middle class. Like, being a Pharisee was, was, was probably something to aspire to. The Pharisees had honor in an honor-shame culture. They also cared very deeply about the Old Testament, okay, about Torah, about keeping God's law. They cared so deeply about it that they built a whole oral tradition around God's law. So if you kept the oral tradition, it would certainly insulate you so that you were keeping the Torah. So they, they cared very much about obeying God. Um, as a matter of fact, they fought to preserve what we call the Old Testament, um, from liberalizing influences of other religious groups, like, for say, say, for example, the Sadducees. We read about the Sadducees. Well, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees rejected some of the Old Testament. Pharisees, you know, reacted against them. 
The Pharisees weren't like the Essenes. That was another group in the period of Jesus. Who started the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found at a place, um, a historical site today called Qumran, and that's where the Essenes lived. The Essenes like looked at their culture, and they're like, it's all going to hell, peace out, we, won't, we don't want to be with you guys, so we're going to move out to the middle of nowhere and like love God by ourselves. The Pharisees weren't like that. They weren't isolationists. Um, there's another religious group, um, Zealots. There's one that we read about in the gospel, the Zealot. Um, the Pharisees weren't like the Zealots. The Zealots wanted to overthrow v- with violence the oppressive regime of the Roman government. The Pharisees really represented your hardworking, Torah-honoring, everyday church or synagogue goers, right? Um, they read and they memorized their Torah scrolls. They paid their tithes. Um, they, they offered their, you know, their sacrifices. There were undoubtedly a bunch of hypocrites also. But do they sound familiar? Do they sound familiar? I think the Pharisees were the heroes. They were like the local pastors. They were the Kobe's, the Jordans. Um, but the Pharisee could easily be you or me. Um, Matthew's the nobody. He's the derelict. He's the sinner. He's not the guy that everybody was aspiring to be. Somewhere along the line, the Pharisees lost God's heart for lost people. Somewhere along the line, they took a tragic turn. Somehow, some way, their hearts drifted from God, and here's the kicker. They did not even realize it. They did not even see it. And that's something about sin. Sin always comes with an element of self-deception, a shroud, a veil of self-deception. If you look up Pharisee and Webster, it'll read something like a self-righteous person or a hypocrite. But this is our definition, right? Not a first century definition. And so... Um, we need to be careful not to look back on them with a condescending gaze. Otherwise, we become like them. It's only by God's grace that we know and belong to Jesus. After all, some of them did repent in Jesus' name, i.e. Nicodemus. Nevertheless, I believe that in this passage, we do see a stark contrast between the posture of the Pharisees towards sinners and Jesus' posture towards sinners. Jesus wasn't concerned with class distinctions. Jesus wasn't concerned with the barriers of sin. Jesus wasn't afraid of being identified with the deplorable. It's probably safe to say that your average Pharisee would receive, would minister to a repentant sinner. But if we look at Jesus, I'll tell you what the Pharisees wouldn't do. The Pharisees would never go banquet, identify with, share table fellowship with a group of lost sinners. They would never do that. So let's briefly review. Okay, we've been through three verses. We've got two more, and we're going to tackle those together. Um, But before we get there, first, what's happened? Jesus called Matthew. Matthew immediately follows. Two, Jesus dines with Matthew and Matthew's motley crew. And three, the Pharisees trip out because Jesus is reclining at table with that motley crew. That leads us to verses 12 through 13, which we're going to take as a unit. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This leads us to our final main point this morning, and that is 
Jesus communicates God's heart right here for the lost. Jesus communicates God's heart for the lost. So in three, the, the, the first three verses that we spent a lot of our time going through lead us to these last two, okay? They prepare the way, so to speak. And these last two verses kind of logically are divided up into three statements, okay? Three units of thought. First, Jesus offers a proverbial saying along the lines of, you know, only the sick need medical help, right? So first, Jesus offers a proverb, and that proverb was something that everybody in that day, Pharisee or any common person of the land, would be able to understand and would recognize, okay? Common ground, a proverb. Then Jesus presents to them, to these Pharisees, um, an Old Testament divine truth, uh, a citation from the book of Hosea that God wants action or mercy more than he wants just kind of external worship or, or sacrifice or ritual. So first a proverb, second um, an Old Testament truth, and the third thing, note that the Old Testament truth would, would be something that the Pharisees would understand very clearly. And the third thing Jesus is going to lay out is some revelation. Okay, the third th- thing that Jesus is going to lay out is, is a dramatic concluding proclamation about who he is and therefore who God is. Now, in the first of those three things, in the proverb, Jesus is not saying that the religious leaders are healthy. Because what does he say? He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. We need to understand that Jesus is not really saying that those Pharisees are well. What he's really saying is, I have not come for those who believe they are healthy, but for those who know that they are sick. Does that make sense? Remember, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Friends, what is our self-assessment? How do we assess ourselves before God, before Jesus? Do we assess ourselves as sinners in need or as Pharisees with a pretty solid track record? There's a lot of people in here this morning. Maybe this morning you are responsible dad right? Responsible dad. Uh, You have raised your family in church. You've read the Bible with your kids before bed every night. Um, You pay your tithe every week, Um, maybe even give sacrificially above and beyond. You fill out your hours honestly on your time card. You pay your mortgage on time. You invest your money wisely. Um, Your wife is loved. Your children are loved. All those things. Maybe you're that guy. Maybe you're a responsible dad. Um, Maybe you're Proverbs 31 wife, right? Like you read Proverbs 31, that's who you have aspired to be and consequently what you have lived out. Like you have ra- you, you've respected your husband, you've honored him, um, you've learned what it means to submit as unto the Lord. Uh, maybe, you know, you've raised, set a great example for your daughters. Uh, you love the Lord, you love his word. Maybe you're here this morning and you're, you're a theology nerd, right? Maybe you just love to feast on the Word of God. You just soak it up, and you've got an increasing collection of commentaries and and theological materials that you like to parse and read, and you're just devouring knowledge, right? Maybe you're that guy. Here's what Jesus is asking you. Whether you're responsible dad, theology nerd, or Proverbs 31 wife, or local pastor, this is what Jesus is asking you. But does your heart ache 
for the lost. The doctor of derelicts was the great physician of sinful hearts. Verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. We read this, we don't think too much of it, go and learn. But Jesus uses these three words, go and learn, as he's addressing the Pharisees. Now remember, first thing was a general truth. Second thing was an Old Testament quotation, something the Pharisees undoubtedly would have understand. But how does Jesus treat them? He uses this language, go and learn. And this is formal rabbinic language. This is a very common saying that a rabbi, you know, would, would say to his pupil or to his students. In effect, he's like, Jesus is like, all right, little one, go learn your Torah. Go learn what this means. It's ironic in this passage that, that earlier when the Pharisees trip out because Jesus is reclining at table at that banquet, do the Pharisees like man up and approach Jesus directly? No, they go to his disciples. Why does your teacher? Now Jesus is going to show them that he's their teacher too. All right? So here comes the lesson. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now we're going to dig deep into our Old Testament for a moment. The Pharisees know that he is citing Hosea 6.6. 6. Um, but being good rabbinic scholars, they also know what surrounds Hosea 6.6. 6. They appreciate the context, right? So I want to read to you um, Hosea 6.6 6 through 10 because this is the unit of thought as a whole that Jesus is applying to these Pharisees. Okay, this is, this is the proclamation he is making about them. Follow along with me. Hosea 6, starting with verse 6. Oh, incidentally, uh, in Hosea, what's going on with uh, Israel? They're an apostate nation, um, and even though they keep all the law, really their heart is far from the Lord. They've lost the spirit, the heart of the law. They've lost love. They've lost mercy. But they focus a lot on ritual and on sacrifice. Okay, so what does Jesus say? How does Jesus apply that truth to these Pharisees? For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Sounds familiar. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Whoredom. Israel is defiled. Whoa. Jesus just dominates them with the Old Testament. I think that this is the biggest WWF smackdown in the history of religion. And what Jesus is communicating to those Pharisees, to those religious, well-behaving men, is that you cannot love God and not his people. You cannot love God and not the lost. You cannot have a heart that burns for God, but doesn't break for the broken. Paul communicates this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, I have become all things to all people, 
that by all means I might save some. What's his motivation? I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. So if we try to like bridge the context and consider our lives and our existence here at Hope Chapel as a church family, I would like to say that I think some of the things we're talking about help us appreciate why mini church is so important. Mini church is very much like the early church. They met in houses, you know, house churches. They, they sang psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They encouraged one another. They, they prayed. They shared meals. They reclined at table. So mini church is in a very real sense like where we take the kung fu from the dojo to the street, right? Um, it's one forum, one arena to welcome the sinner and minister God's grace. It's one setting where we can live out our calling. It's one place where together we can be devoted to Jesus, devoted to each other as a church family, and devoted to witness to those sinners God is calling to salvation. God has called us to so much more church than the very common church existence that many people experience today. And that is um, a very reduced existence of plop, pay, and pray. I'm going to come into church. I'm going to plop down in my seat. I'm going to pay my tithe. I'm going to say a prayer. And I'm going to peace out when the opening worship song begins. God's called us to more than that. More than that, I've been that guy. And by God's grace, he is leading me and shepherding me. And Jesus is discipling me and teaching me what it means to follow him and to worship him and to love him and to love his people and to love the lost. Back to our passage. Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire A and not B. This requires a little clarification. It's not the case that Jesus is saying, I really don't want any sacrifice. Um, What he's really saying is, B is more important than A. Mercy is more important than sacrifice. Does that make sense? I think that we could contemporize this for ourselves, and it would go something like this. I desire devotion and not worship concerts. I I desire service and not sermons. Now, As we draw to a close, uh, every scene, every sentence, every clause, every word, every letter, every thought in this passage has led to a final destination. It has led to Jesus' dramatic, climactic, final, authoritative, gracious, merciful, loving, good proclamation. For I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. He came to seek and to save what was lost. And as we consider his ministry, we would do well to recognize that the ministry of the church, our ministry, is not so much to those who believe that they are right with God, but who know that they are sinners. This is the joy of God's salvation, that it embraces us in the midst of our sin. If you've lost sight of this joy, if you are missing the joy of your salvation. Perhaps you have lost sight of your depravity. I've lost sight of it before. 
Perhaps you have lost sight of yourself as having once been transformed from a derelict into a disciple, as one who has been delivered by the doctor of our souls. Jesus' merciful outreach demonstrates for us our own calling to seek out those who are sinfully sick and to invite them to experience healing of their souls and to come into the fellowship of our discipleship to Jesus. So, as I close, now that you have been confronted with Jesus, now that you have been confronted with the very Word of God, what are you going to do? Who or what are you going to follow? Are you going to follow your heart? Or are you going to follow your conscience? Will you follow the crowd? Will you follow our culture? My hope and prayer and heart for us is that we would say no to following those things. And that together we would answer Jesus' authoritative call. And that together, individually and collectively, that we would follow Jesus. And just like that tax collector, the tax collector 2,000 years ago, he calls us today. He's called me. He's called you. Or if you don't know, yet, know him yet, he is calling you. And his call is authoritative. It demands immediate, decisive, and definitive response. His call is to a lifetime of following, a lifetime of discipleship. He has found each and every one of us derelict and mercifully He has called us to new life. Mercifully, he has shown us the cross. Mercifully, he has called us to be his disciples. And so church, let us follow him. And then let us follow him some more. And let us keep on following him. Let us follow him into uncomfortable contexts in order to reach as the hands and feet of Jesus, the noticeably unworthy. Let us follow him away from our own self-righteousness. Let us pick up our crosses and follow him daily. And let us follow him until he calls us home. In church, may we never turn back whatever may come. Amen. Pray with me.